good morning once again. We've got a, a BOGO message for you today, buy one, get one free. So uh, we're going to cover two different perspectives in the chapters of Ecclesiastes 7 through 12 that we haven't touched yet in Ecclesiastes. Now, we've covered so far in chapters 1 through 6 the, the perspectives, the themes of work, wisdom, pleasure, comfort, nature, time, seasons, justice, injustice, death, and next week we're going to rewind and look at money. And all of it's gold in chapters 7 through 12. It's God's word. But we want to hone in on the major perspectives we haven't addressed yet together. And so today, we're going to first focus on the perspective of relationships with other people. And then we're going to focus on the perspective of grief. And it's going to be kind of a hard shift in the middle. So I just wanted to tell you that from the get-go. Um, but I trust that God is going to use both of those today in our lives. And I think both are timely as well on Mother's Day. See, I think it will help us honor our mothers more by improving our relational skills with her. And I think it can help us help our mothers. Um, we can help our mothers and moms themselves walk through times of grief. So I think both are very timely. So let's start with the perspective we see in Ecclesiastes 7 through 12 on relationships with others. And we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 5, if you're following along. We're using the CSB, if you can quickly change translations on your app. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 5, it says, It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. He's saying we need to listen to wise critique from others. He's saying it's actually better for us when a wise person comes and says, Hey, have you ever considered this? Than if someone comes to you and encourages you. He's saying that first one is better for us. A couple years ago, I just happened to read a devotional the morning of my annual review with our elders. I didn't just happen to read that. God gave that to me as a gift that, this, that morning because I struggle to listen to rebuke. And it hit me between the eyes. And it really helped me have a heart posture to hear, learn, grow, and apply what I was about to hear in my annual review. And so I just wanted to read this devotional with you. Um, this is by Paul Tripp in his devotional, New Morning Mercies. It's on the screen for you as well. I wish I could say that this is not my struggle. I wish I could say that I fully accepted the reality of my spiritual battle. I wish I could say that I'm always thankful for the help God provides. I wish I could say that I'm always open and approachable. I wish I could say all these things, but sadly I can't. When I'm approached about a wrong I've committed, I don't tend to say to the other person, oh, thank you so much for confronting me. I know that I suffer from spiritual blindness and don't see myself accurately. Please keep rebuking me. I know it's a visible sign of God's love. No. 
There are two things that tend to be more natural for me as I feel my ears redden and my chest tighten. I first activate my internal defense system and mount arguments in my mind against the charge. Perhaps I was misunderstood. Maybe this is an invalid judgment of my motives. Perhaps what this person thought I did, I just didn't do. Then I work to erect arguments for my righteousness. I list all of the good but maybe unnoticed things I am doing. I work to convince myself and the person confronting me that I am righteous. And in these two actions, not only am I neglecting empirical evidence of the sin that still resides in my heart, but I am also defending righteousness that doesn't exist. Here's the sad part. In doing both of these things, I'm devaluing the grace that is my only hope in life and death. To whatever extent I am able to convince myself that my sin isn't really sin, that is, that my little wrongs do not really rise to the level of what Jesus died for, I'm not really that excited about grace. Why? Because I have convinced myself that I don't really need the rescue and forgiveness that grace offers. And to the degree that I am able to work myself into believing that I am righteous, I have less esteem for the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness with which I can stand before God. So I may have a crisp and clear theology of grace, and I may be able to point to passages in in God's word that clearly preach that grace, but where the rubber meets the road in everyday life, self-righteousness stands in the way of that grace having functional and transformative value in my life. My defensiveness in the face of the confrontation of the body of Christ and the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit stands as a practical denial of what I say I believe. It keeps me supporting what I should flee from and stops me from running running to the place where help is only ever found. What about you? Have you really abandoned your righteousness? Does that make you run toward the grace of Jesus or will you defend today what Jesus died to destroy? Perhaps before you start confessing your sin, you should first confess your righteousness. Listen to wise critique of others. In so doing, you're embracing the grace of God. Secondly, we see this perspective of relationships with others and how to handle them. And the second one we see a little farther along in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 21 and 22. 7, 21. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart, you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. He's saying, don't listen to everything others say. You know, sometimes people say things behind your back or indirectly that you shouldn't hear. Solomon's logic is sound here. We all say things about others that aren't helpful for others to hear sometimes. Therefore, don't let what others say about you affect you so much. Now, is this contradictory from 7 verse 5? You know, he was just saying, and we just got done talking about listening to others. So is verses 21 and 22 contradictory? Absolutely not. Like many of Solomon's uh, points in Ecclesiastes, he's calling for balance. 
We need to listen to wise people who are actually trying to help us grow by bringing concerns to us. But we need to balance that so that we aren't listening and taking to heart everything that anyone ever says about us. That would be foolish. In the classic, My Utmost for His Highest, by the 1900 Scottish pastor Oswald Chambers, he said this, Spiritual maturity is going from being thin-skinned and hard-hearted to thick-skinned and soft-hearted. Or put another way, we need to have the skin of a rhino and the heart of a tender-hearted mom. Now I'm certain that there are many here today that need to hear this really well and take it to heart. So here it is. Stop caring so much about what other people are saying about you. Stop caring so much about what you think other people are saying about you. Be free. Don't live in that bondage. You want to you live in anxiety and stress? Think about what other people are saying about you all day. But if you want to be free of that, let it go. People love to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and often they're, op- they're saying absolute nonsense. Here's what you need to hear in your life. You need to hear, first and foremost, the word of God. You need to have your Bible open and then keep coming back to it and the truths in it. You need to hear from him, first and foremost. Then you need to hear from wise, godly people in your life, even when they're saying things that are hard to hear. And then you need to ignore and throw away almost everything else, all the other chatter that people are saying about you. This really is the key to living a peace-filled, less anxious, Christ-exalting life. Stop caring so much what other people are saying about you. Some of you today need to do this exercise. You need to get out a piece of paper, and you need to get out a pen, and you need to write out all of the things that you think other people are saying about you, or you know that other people are saying about you. You then need to rip it into shreds and throw it in a fire. And then you need to say, God, Help me in my heart and mind to also throw those things into the fire so that you can be free. Don't listen to everything others say about you. Third, we need to be calm with others. A couple chapters over in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 17 and 18. 9, 17, and 18. It says, The calm Words of the wise are heeded more than the shouts of a ruler over fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. You want to actually be heard by others? Be calm. I have the privilege and have had the privilege for several years serving alongside Tim Ellis as an elder. And there's been many, many times where the rest of us in the room at elder meetings are kicking around ideas and getting passionate and there's a bit of tension and we can't figure out what to do. And Tim goes, what about this? Mic drop. And we're like, that's it. Why do we listen to Tim? Not only because he is a wise, godly man who brings wise things. It's because, 9 verse 17, the calm words... Of the wise are heeded. He was calm and brought calmness to this situation. And I can't thank you enough for that. Not only in the elder's uh, uh, life, so to speak, but in my own life. 
Tim. So I appreciate you. Kids in the room, imagine the joy you could bring to your mother today if you were calm when she asks you to go do something. There's a thought. A page or two over for you, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. Same thought, 10:4. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post, for calmness puts great offenses to rest. Calmness. My mentor and friend, friend Steve Pinkley, executive director out at Hidden Acres, told me in the midst of COVID, he said, Matt, you need to be a duck. And I'm like, I don't think I do. And he's like, no, no, you need to be a duck. Hear me out. And he's like, see that duck out on the water? It looks really calm. But below the surface, it's probably freaking out, trying to stay afloat. He's like, that is what you need to be as a leader right now. I love that illustration. Sometimes, you know, it says in this verse, sometimes a ruler's anger will rise against you in life. Sometimes there will be things that just come at you. Stay calm. Be a duck. Now, on the other hand, let me say this. Don't be a doormat. But my guess is that for a lot of us, you probably don't have a problem with that. I think a lot of us are way too reactive and even radioactive. And we need a lot more of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, of gentleness and patience and kindness and self-control. And if that's you, this verse says it well. Calmness puts great offenses to rest. Now this might be a hard word for you. This is a hard word for me personally. For, for those of us who are naturally very passionate or animated or reactive, this could be a hard word for you. Recently I got away to rest and be with Jesus for a couple days, which I'm not going to stop saying this. I said it last week. I'll keep saying it. Do it. Put it on your calendar this spring, summer, fall. Find some time, half a day, a whole day, a whole weekend, whatever. Get away. Bring a journal. Bring the Bible. Be with Jesus. But as I did this, as I read God's word, I saw something in scripture that I hadn't noticed before, and it was talking about how God is zealous what is zeal? It's passion. God is passionate. And as a person who is rather passionate, in fact, that is the word people usually use to describe me first, that was great news. God is too. I'm not crazy. Well, maybe a little. But God is passionate. And I also saw that God wisely pours out his passion, get this, at just the right time, on just the right things, and in just the right amount. God is passionate at just the right time, on just the right things, at just the right amount. 
And my prayer for the last couple years for myself and my prayer for you as well, if you struggle to be calm, is that we can be like Jesus who, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, he did what? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23. That is my prayer for us. That we would not just go, okay, I need to be calm, I need to be calm, I need to be calm, blow up. But instead, that we would come to Jesus when we're struggling to be calm and need to be calm and entrust whatever's swirling on in our minds and our hearts to Jesus and be like Jesus who entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Fourth piece of wisdom in interacting with others is that we need to be slow to speak to others. Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 14. 10, 12. The words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No one knows what will happen. And who can tell anyone what will happen after him? So verse 12. We need to be slow to speak. And we need to be slow to speak because our words will do one of two things. Your words, whenever you speak, will either bring life or they will destroy life. They will bring hope and help and joy or they will destroy Hope, help, and joy, both in your own life and in the lives of others, if you just let your mouth run. But also, we need to be slow to speak because verse 13, it's saying, hey, once you start babbling without thinking, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, snowball effect, verse 14, and if you just keep talking and talking without thinking, there's no telling what will happen. That verse is so snarky, I love it. No one knows what will happen. And who can tell anyone what will happen after him? That's what we do when we multiply words and just talk and talk and talk. I love uh, Josh Beeman, our youth and worship pastor's illustration when we were in Proverbs uh, of our words being like squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste bottle. It's so good. It's funny because there's a little residue still on the stand that reminds me of it every week. Um, but a great illustration. You can't get them back. You, once that toothpaste is out, you don't get it back. That's what this is saying here in Ecclesiastes. We need to be slow to speak with others because you can't get those words back. And our elder, Randy, who's taken some grief in this service so far, I, w- I would like to build up a little bit. Um, <laughs> amen, yes. Uh, Randy said to me recently, he said, you need to learn to hesitate, even if for a second before you speak, because it helps filter what you will say, but it also gives them a chance to share more, which gives you a better perspective to be able to respond well. Sage advice. I appreciate that, Randy. So as we turn our attention now to Solomon's perspective on grief, all four of those things that I just showed you 
are helpful in dealing with and walking with someone through grief as well, being calm, right? Not multiplying words, all of the things we just discussed. So there's my attempt to sew these two things together. Let's look at grief. Let's go back to chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 4. These are, these are fascinating verses. These verses have had me thinking for years and years. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 4. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, and when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Here's what he's saying. Here's the sobering reality under the sun here on earth. Grief cannot and should not be avoided. Grief cannot and should not be avoided. Verse 2, let's start with what he is not saying. He's not saying you should try to go to a funeral every day and enjoy it. That'd be weird. He's not saying you need to get really preoccupied with death. Verse 2, he is saying that the house of mourning is good for us on occasion. But how could it be better than feasting? I mean, given the choice, we'd all choose to go to a buffet rather than a funeral. Okay? Never met anyone who's like, no, I'd rather go to the funeral, Matt. Haven't met him yet. Okay? Let me, let me paint the picture like this. As a pastor, there have been weeks where I've been both to the ICU and the birthing center in the same hospital. There have been weeks that I have done a funeral and a child dedication in the same week. Literally staring life and death both in the face. Do you know what has made me more like Christ? Do you know what has grown me? Do you know how God has used me the most? Guess what? It was at the funeral. It was in the ICU. So it isn't that you are going to enjoy it more. That's not what the scripture says here. It's saying that the house of mourning is better for us in the long run. Grief is unavoidable and should be accepted, not ignored though. Why? Verse 2 tells us. It reminds us of the certainty of death. And when we realize death is coming, we can live more fully now for Jesus. In verse 3, it reiterates this point that we, you know, when grief comes, it cannot, it should not be avoided. See, grief is better than laughter. Verse 4, it's better than pleasure. But grief, hear this well, grief doesn't just come when someone you love dies. That is a difficult situation. That is certainly a cause to grieve, and you should grieve when that happens. But grief comes, get this, whenever you lose anything. Anything. And you don't need to feel silly for grieving over losing something, even if it seems silly to someone else. Whether you lose freedoms because of a pandemic or relationships because people move or your kids grow up and move out of the house, that is a loss. 
and you need to grieve it. You can't run from grief. You can kick it down the road all you want, but anytime you let water run under the bridge, so to speak, eventually it will dam up and create a deluge of untouched, undealt with grief and pain that will catch up to you. People try to run from grief all the time. They try to numb it with alcohol and food and drugs and working out. They try to ignore it with new relationships in their life, new diets, new toys. They try stuffing it and pretending like everything's just fine when it clearly is not. But it will catch up to you. No one outruns grief. And men, hear me well, and I'm sure some women as well, this, they, you fit this description. But men, listen up. Being strong for your family does not mean being stoic at a funeral. Being strong, being a man, is being man enough to weep and experience the grief head on. And in so doing, setting a healthy example of Jesus who wept when his friend Lazarus died. We need to get that mindset out of our heads and out of our church family, and out of our families. You kick grief down the road, you and your whole family will be hurting even more. But here's the good news. The good news is that grief is actually a human emotion given to us by God. God, in His grace, gave us grief to be able to process and experience loss. See, He saw the mess that we made of this world in our sin. We messed it up. But instead of saying, ha, serves you right, He gave us the outlet of grief to mourn over what He also mourns over, loss. Which leads to the next point. Grief directs us to God. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Grief directs us to God. We learn here that God has made every type of day, good, bad, joyful, painful. And the end of this verse tells us the reason that it's so important that we remember that God made both types of days is to keep us humble. See, he is God, we are not. So bad, painful, grief-filled days are designed to direct our gaze and attention to God himself. Certainly, though, those days will bring to mind all sorts of mysterious questions about God and pain and suffering. Absolutely. But, and, and there's great answers for those things, praise God, that I would love to talk to you about if you're just really wrestling with, with questions of evil and pain and God allowing those things and, and how does all of that work. And I have addressed that in past sermons and will in the future, but I'd love to talk to you personally as well to help you process that. But the point here is that regardless of God's mysterious purposes, grief and pain does direct us to God, unlike anything else. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So often in our prosperous, joy-filled days, we can lose all sight of God. But grief is a megaphone from God calling us to run to him. Now I want to go forward a few pages to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, for some more perspective on grief. Ecclesiastes 12, 1. He addresses a particular type of grief here, and it's the, gray, the grief from the aging process. Ecclesiastes 12.1, so remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in that. Now, if you just keep following along, I'm not going to read them. I'm going to explain them. In verses 2 through 7 here, Warren Wearsby gives a list of what the possible meaning of the specifics in these are. And I agree with Wearsby that this is a metaphor of a house falling apart, much like a human body as it ages falls apart. Listen to this. Verse 3 talks about guardians of the house, the guardians of the house trembling. That means as you get older, your arms and hands often start to tremble. Verse 3, the strong men stoop, talking about legs, knees, shoulders, weakening, sometimes walking bent over. Verse 3. Women grind grain cease is talking about people losing their teeth. Verse 3, windows is referring to vision, your vision beginning to deteriorate. Verse 4, the door is shutting, your hearing starts to fail. Verse 4, when you rise up, it's talking about when you wake up early, you wish you could sleep longer, but you're just having a hard time sleeping. Verse 4, the song grows faint, talking about your voice starting to weaken. Verse 5, you become afraid. You're terrified of falling, perhaps, while you're walking because you're a little more unstable. Verse 5, the almond tree, talking about your hair turning white or gray like almond blossoms. Verse 5, the grasshopper loses its spring. It's talking about just becoming more immobile. And verse 5, the caper berry loses its effect. It, it, it could mean losing your appetite or sexual desire. This is a sobering reality for each of us as we age. Now, I just want to note this. I know that I am on the younger side of life for now. But I want to encourage everyone here today, especially those who are further along in age than me today. Why? Because God is speaking to you directly in here. And I want you to hear this and be encouraged by it and helped by it. And for those of us who are younger, notice verse 1. It implores us that before the days of adversity come, remember your creator. I love that concept. This is true for all types of grief and all types of adversity, not just aging. It's true that the best time to form your theology on suffering is actually before you suffer. So the best time to form your theology on aging is before you really start to age. So if you're younger, listen up as well. The clear call here is to not forget God who created you and cares for you immensely as you begin to age. He wove you intricately together in his image. You are his work of art. And even as your body falls apart, 
because of the effects of this sin-filled world, remember who created you. And remember who will recreate you if you are in Christ with your resurrection body someday. But as you experience grief, particularly the grief of the pains and aches of aging, you really can respond one of two ways. You can either grow resentful and distant towards life and God, or you can grow grow hopeful and more joyful in relationship with God. Which one will it be for you? Decide now. My grandma, who has since passed in her last days, even when she was immobile, never stopped humming. She was always humming a tune. And she never stopped being super conversational. She always wanted to know what was happening in your life. And she never stopped being super grateful for everything that God had blessed her with. She never stopped seeking the Lord. So as you age, and we all will, if you're not there yet, you will. Your day will come. Choose today to be hopeful and joyful walking with God, not resentful and distant towards God. What's great, though, is that God doesn't just merely say, hey, when you're grieving, whether it's from aging or or from the loss of anything in life, God doesn't just say, hey, remember me. He takes it to the next level, and he walks with us in our grief. And that leads to the last point. Here's the hope-filled reality under Christ. Jesus walks with us in our grief. Psalm 23, 4 and 5. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What a word from God, right? Psalm 23, 4 and 5 is is describing what it means that Jesus is not simply our Savior, although He is. He is not simply our Lord, though He is. He is our friend who is with us even when we grieve. Psalm 23, 4 and 5 could be unpacked for literally hours. But I want to look at what Jesus promises us in these verses when we grieve. Here's what he promises us. He's saying, I am with you right now as you grieve. He's saying, I am comforting you in just the right way right now. It may not even feel like it, but my rod and my staff, they comfort you. I'm comforting you in just the way you need to be right now. And he's saying, I am inviting you to my table, to an un." hurried feast and conversation like you can have with no one else. You know, lately I've, I've been experiencing Jesus more as my friend. You might be like, Matt, you're a pastor. I hope you have. I know that Jesus is my friend, and I've known that for a long time in my head. I've just been experiencing it lately. So, I've had times where it's like God is, is like saying, hey, Matt, 
why don't you come on over here? I want to show you something, like in a really great way. And I come over there, and it's like, oh, whoa, that's really cool. This happened the other day. I was at uh, a camp, and there was an island in a little kitchenette area. Here it is. And I had that moment, and God was like, hey, Matt, come on over here. I want to show you this. Now, what's significant about an island to me is that often with my friends and my family, we'll find ourselves around an island talking, eating snacks, joking around, just having great fellowship around an island. And so I felt like it was Jesus just saying, hey, Matt, let's spend some time together like you do with your friends. I'm like, oh, okay, let's do it. And it was really refreshing and really relaxing. See, that's, that's what he's saying in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He invites me and you, not just when we're grieving, but all of the time. Whether our circumstances are terrible or they're great, he has this invitation, hey, come sit at the table with me. And my prayer is that you would take Jesus up on that invitation to the table to simply pause and talk with him, regardless of what's swirling around you in your life. Jesus walks with us in our grief. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your friendship. I thank you that even when we lose friends, you are a friend like no other. I pray for those in here this morning who are grieving. I pray for those in here who have lost relationships, who have lost people to death, Pray for those who have lost opportunities, for those who have lost anything, that they would know without a shadow of a doubt that you are with them, Jesus, that they would experience your presence and your friendship. And I thank you so much for your word, Jesus. I pray that Psalm 23 would be experienced in each person's life here, Jesus just like I've been experiencing it lately, but in, an own, in, in their own unique way, that whatever that is, that, that environment that's just really inviting and reminds them of friendship, that you would, you would just be so gracious to place those circumstances in their life and just whisper to them, I love you, and I'm your friend, and we're going to walk through this together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with us and sing this last song together.